Welcome to the New Life Millbrook Weekly Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast or other resources, please visit nlmillbrook.com. Last week, we talked um, through Easter and what uh, the, the, the story of the crucifixion, burial, resurrection of Jesus. And, and a lot of times we magnify what we should magnify, and that is exactly what he did. But then we leave this gap. And this gap is now for 40 days after the resurrection. What now? And so we're going to be talking over the next couple of weeks about what do you do, what do, you do after the resurrection? Like, what is our life and our role? Um, and then we're going to go into a series about the book of Acts and how that, that wasn't just for something that took place then, but something that is supposed to continue to take place now. Um, so let's go ahead and dive in. In Acts chapter 1, the former account I made, O Theophilus, in verse 1, of all that Jesus began to both do and teach until the day which he was taking up. After he, though, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, verse 3, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of these things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Why did he walk around for 40 days? To prove that he was still alive. Uh, every major world religion has this, that's not just a philosophical idea, but a religion has an idea of a central figure. Okay? Um, in, in Judaism, the, the central figure for a lot of it is Abraham. And you can actually go to the Holy Land and visit the approximated area of where Abraham's body is still there. People go on pilgrimages. There, he, it's enshrined. There are places, and you can spend tons of money for somebody to go, it's there in the ground. You can, you can travel if you're into Islam. And you can travel and see where Muhammad is buried. It is enshrined. People make pilgrimages and, and they make vows and they make sacrifices where his body is. The Buddha is the same exact thing. But the crazy part is that if you go to Israel today and you say, where is Jesus' tomb? No one can show you. For such a central figure, and I need to, un- need to unpack something for a second the central figure of Jesus isn't because he's big now. He was still big back then. So the idea that his followers wouldn't enshrine his tomb, that his followers wouldn't take great care of where his body would lay is, is a fallacy. You've got to remember that when they went to arrest him, they didn't take a few guards. They took over 500 soldiers to, ta- to take him. 500 soldiers. That's more soldiers than we took to take out El Chapo. Like, you got to realize, that's a lot of armed men to take one guy. 500 armed men. He was no small figure, so this idea that we have no idea where his tomb would be is paramount, and I'm going to tell you why it's big. It's because it doesn't matter, because he's not there. That's the big thing. We can point back to an Abraham. We can point back to a Muhammad. We can point back to a a Buddha. But when you go to a Jesus, we are the only group in the entire big four of all the religions that go, it doesn't matter because ours is still alive. And it's important to start with that premise that the where of his burial isn't important because there's nothing there. Nothing is there at all. 
And so when we see in Luke chapter 23, we're going to see kind of the immediate after effects, not of just the power of Jesus' resurrection, but what it meant to four key people. And it says this <clears throat> in verse 50, Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, in verse 50 of chapter 23 of Luke. Now behold, there was a man, Joseph, a council member, a good and just man, and he had not consented to their decision and their deed, which is to crucify Jesus. He was from Arimathea, the city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and when he took it down, he wrapped it in linen and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out by a rock, for no one had ever lain there before. Isn't it interesting that there just so happened to be a tomb right there that no one had ever used before? A, a, a lot of people look at the, the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled and think, well, yeah, he just did what he did. But can I tell you, there's two big things that he could not control, and that was how he was born and what happened after he died, both which are prophetic. Isaiah talks about a rich man that takes him to a tomb that was not yet used. Like, that's something that Jesus couldn't make happen. There are things time after time that, sure, Jesus could show up at a spot at a specific time to sound like he's uh, fulfilling prophecy, but there, the things that he was out of his control, he still made sure that it was there. Why? Because he wants to leave no shadow of a doubt of who he is. Why? Because it's not just the fact that he died, because understanding the death of Jesus would be big. And if Jesus died, just being a man for everything he did would be huge and should be revered as a man for just what he did. But the idea that he is alive and well would mean that other men and women would now put their lives on the line for this cause understanding that as you stand before the gallows of, 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 of the future, looking in the eyes of a Nero and understanding the swords of, the, of, of Islam going, it's still worth it because truth is worth dying for. Leaving no stone unturned, no question in the air that Jesus is the Son of God who died and rose again. And there were women who came with him, Jesus, from Galilee, who followed after, and they observed the tomb, and how his body was laid, and they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Now, on the first day of the week, early in the morning, they and certain other women went with them and came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, and when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord. And it happened that they were greatly perplexed about this. And behold, two men stood by them in shining garments." Then as they were afraid, they bowed their faces to the earth. They said to him, you seek the living, living among the dead. He is not here, but risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day and rise. And they remembered his words. And when they returned from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. And it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, mother of James, and other women with them who told them these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, for they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes lying by themselves and departed, marveling unto himself at what had happened. Father, we thank you. 
for the all power that you gave and Jesus for rising from the dead. We ask today that as we dive into your word, you speak to us about four of these characters and where we fit in this story. In Jesus' name, amen. You know what's an interesting thing? My dad uh, was raised Catholic, and I have my family on his side is Catholic, and I have a, an immense appreciation for multiple denominations and my Catholic brothers and sisters and, and everything that has gone on. And, and I am a Bible nerd. I will forever be a Bible student, and I love it. Like yesterday on my way home, uh, uh, I was listening to Catholic radio because I'm a dork, and I love to listen to random stupid things every once in a while. Um, and and we're, 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 they're walking through different things, and we're talking about Mary, and they're talking about Martha, and we're, 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 they're doing, we're, we're, I'm having a conversation with the radio, and, and we're having this conversation. Um, and then it, I had this quick epiphany. Uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is not mentioned again. She, she's not there. And it wasn't because she had passed. We see, in, in, in fact, let's, let's talk about Mary for just a quick second. Uh, Mary <coughs> is the first person I want to dive into. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Uh, we want to label her as the sole believer for the, for the first part of the church. Mary is the only person that is part of the church at the beginning. The only person that believed. In Luke chapter 2, we see an incredible birth. We see Jesus doing what, you know, his, his arrival onto the earth. And we see how perplexed it is with the angel showing up and the shepherds showing up. And, and there's a continual phrase that Mary pondered it into her heart. They go and take Jesus to the temple. The man looks and says, this is the one. This is him. He is the Messiah. He is the son of the living. He, he is all of these things. And, and I love it because he begins to say, now, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all the people, a light to bring, to, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at these things which were spoken. Then Simeon blessed him and said to his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and the rising of many, and a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul, that the thoughts of, of many hearts may be revealed. We're seeing Mary ponder these things, pondering the birth, pondering this, this, the life of Jesus. We see, him, we see her go to Jesus and say, do something at the wedding of Cana. She understood from the beginning who he was. Other disciples seem to have brief amnesia. Peter, behold, you are the son of the living God. And then all of a sudden, I don't know this man. Like we see Mary is continually steadfast in her understanding of who this man is. <clears throat> and we see Mary there in John chapter 19 at the tomb, at, at, at the cross. We see the women standing there, and Jesus, while on the cross, looks at John and says, John, behold your mother. Mary, behold your son. In other words, take care of my mom. And this is the thing we have to understand for a while. Jesus being 33-ish, 34-ish at this moment in his life, Mary being young when she had Jesus, isn't of great age. Uh, she's about Heidi's age. I said not great age. 
didn't say young. I just said not going to. No, she is most likely in between 47 and 52 years old, depending on what time frame she got pregnant with Jesus. I've never thought about this, that Mary at that age still had a long life ahead of her. And she would watch countless of Jesus' followers die. And it, it's interesting to me that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is at the foot of the cross, but Mary, the mother of Jesus, is not mentioned at all going to the tomb of Jesus, ever. Mary, the mother of Jesus, isn't mentioned as Jesus just showing up. Now, here's the crazy part. Our church history, that's not written here in Scripture, our church history has Jesus and the tradition of him showing up to his mom. Not at the tomb, at the house. In anticipation of his return. And this is where we see him right now. We see a Mary who has been faithful to the cause for the remainder of her life. The story of Jesus is a beautiful thing because there are people in our church, there are people watching online, there are people that, are, that have been faithful to the cause for the remainder of their lives. From, from a young age to an old age, they remain faithful to the cause. And I want you to understand that there is great reward by remaining faithful to the cause of Jesus. The cause of Jesus isn't something that is supposed to be glorified because you had crazy years, but because of Jesus. And if you've been like me and you've had crazy years, then glory to God, you're back home. But there's such a beauty of falling in love with Jesus at a young age and maintaining a love for Jesus in an old age. There is honor and there is grace and there is wisdom and there is something powerful because I want you to understand for some stupid reason in our culture, we're glorifying our past and saying, but Jesus, but can I tell you that the power of Jesus is meant to sustain you from a young age to an old age, and there's no honor, come on, there's no honor in going, I'm going to take a break, Jesus, and come back when I'm ready, but there is great honor by going, a thousand may go that way, and 10,000 can go that way, but as a teenager, as a 20-something, as a 30-something, I'm maintaining my walk with Jesus. Why? Because there is no shame and there is no embarrassment for those who maintain their walk with Jesus. Mary maintained. She wasn't freaking out when everybody else was freaking out. Was she heartbroken to watch the one she loved suffer? A thousand percent yes, but was she scared of her tomorrow? Not for one moment. The antithesis of this would be <laughs> Peter. In Luke chapter 5, we see what takes place with Peter. In verse 1, it says, And there were multitudes were pressed around to hear the word of God. He stood by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats standing by the lake. And, but the fishermen had gone from them, and they were washing their nets. And he asked to get in the boats, which was Simon's. Push off a little bit, and he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. When he stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let your nets out for a catch. But Simon answered and said, Master, we've toiled all night and caught nothing, but at your word we'll let down a net. 
And when he had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their nets were breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And when they came and filled both boats so much that they began to sink. And when Peter saw this, he fell down at Jesus' knees and saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid, for now on you will catch men. For when they had brought their boats to the land, they forsook it all and followed him. At that moment, Peter realized who this Jesus was. That he has the power to not only be a great speaker, that he has the power not only to be a great prophet and to be a great healer, but he has the power to control nature itself. <clears throat> the power to provide everything. And, he, and on top of that, he looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, you not only see me as a fisherman, but you see so much more inside of me. And that's the, that's the telltale sign of a person who is filled with the Spirit of Jesus. Is they see beyond what everybody else sees. And they call out what other people don't see. They love them where they are, but they call out the good things that are inside of them just as much. Not for their own personal benefit, but he looks at Peter and goes, there's greatness inside of you, Peter. Peter goes, I'm a sinful man. Jesus says, there's greatness inside of you, Peter. Peter looks and says, I have done so many things, but there's greatness inside of you, Peter. We see great things happen through Peter, and then in, in Luke chapter 22, <clears throat> we, we see that, uh, that Jesus and Peter kind of come to another crossroads, this isn't the first time they come to a crossroads because Jesus looked at him and said, get behind me, Satan. Like, there's, there's some crossroads here. In verse 31 of chapter 22, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. I, I want to pause for a second because in our culture, we talk a lot about discipleship and spiritual parents. And, and let me understand what a spiritual parent is supposed to do. A spiritual parent is supposed to see the dangers before the people that they're overseeing. They're supposed to stand in the gap. I can't tell you how many times my mom or my dad would say, no, you're not doing X, Y, and Z because I've seen something before it's taken place. I feel something before it takes place. I've been praying through something, and I don't feel peace. This is what a spiritual parent does. is They don't only keep their eyes on themselves, but they are looking for the pitfalls in those men and women that they're ministering to. And Jesus giving an example of Peter going, Peter, I'm telling you that the enemy is after you, and I want to speak to you to let you know that I see it too. I see what he's trying to do, but don't be afraid. But I prayed for you that your faith would not fail. But when you have, keyword, returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison, to death. Jesus says, Peter, I tell you now, the rooster will crow, will not crow this day before you deny me three times, that you don't even know me. How preposterous for Peter to hear. Having arrested him, they led him, in verse 54, and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and says, This man was with him too. 
But he denied him, saying, Woman, I don't know him. After a little while, another one saw him and said, uh, You are also of, of him. And Peter said, Man, I am not. And after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. How would he know he's a Galilean? Because he talked like a Galilean. Peter, staying true to his nature, couldn't keep his mouth shut. Man, I don't know what you're saying. Immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the words of the Lord and how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. I need to remind you in this moment that Jesus isn't sitting there eating pizza with his homeboys. He's in the middle of a rigorous interrogation, torturing being beaten, being spit upon, being slapped, and yet has enough wherewithal to realize God is still doing something and looks at Peter. And Peter and Jesus make eye contact, and Peter runs. He says he weeps bitterly. His heart is broken because he knows in that moment he turned his back on what he believed. This isn't somebody who was on the fence. And when Peter looks and says, I would die for you, I believe Peter meant it at that moment. But he's now turned himself away from something because the pressures of life have led him to a place that he is now fearful for his own self. This is what Peter does over and over again. This is why he sinks in the water as he's walking toward Jesus because the outside pressure has begun influencing the internal peace. Peter shows up following a Jesus and the outside pressure turns his internal peace to cave another time. We see Peter realizing how not once but twice I've turned my eyes away from my Savior and I've let him down and I've let myself down. What you're seeing here is somebody who didn't make an oops moment, but they feel with every fiber of their beings, I am fully ashamed of myself. He runs and weeps bitterly. I read to you the account of Jesus' resurrection in Mark 16. The angel looks at Mary and says, Don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen, and he's not here. Look at the place where I've laid him. In verse 7, But go and tell his disciples and Peter. It's not because Peter was no longer a follower of Jesus. But when you see somebody who has made 
a mess of their life and a mess of their self. They isolate themselves, they exclude themselves, and Peter being a radical person who just 48 hours earlier chopped some guy's ear off, uh, you can tell he is dealing with, and I'm just going to say, very high highs and very low lows. He's not an emotionally stable individual. I can relate. And you're watching God go, I want you to hear me when I say, specifically go to the one who's turned their back on me. Tell him I'm coming. That's the God we serve. It's not just about I walked through the earth and I kicked open a door and here I am and I'm walking back out, but, but I want you to understand that the one that has left, I want him to come home. I want him to come back. And that's why we look at when she comes and gives this testimony. And it says that, and they, they thought it was a fable, but Peter got up. Because maybe he'd get another chance. Maybe, just maybe, all of this craziness that happened, I'll get to make it right one more time. And he runs. As the tomb is empty. And he ponders, what does this mean for me? It's interesting because we see later on that Jesus shows up at the, at, at the house. And it says the disciples were there. Thomas wasn't there. The disciples were there. And they see Jesus. But it has no mention of Peter. And we can't say he was or he wasn't there. But one thing I've wondered is, is in that moment, with his shame and his depression, did he want to continue to gather or did he just isolate? Because we see in John chapter 21 something bizarre. In John chapter 21, after these things, Jesus showed himself again to disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. <coughs> to Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. And Simon said to them, I'm going fishing. I, I thought in Luke 5, they, they left everything. I guess he kept a little bit behind, just in case. They said, we're going with you. They went out immediately and got into the boat. And guess what? They catch nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore. The disciples didn't know it was Jesus. And he said, children, have you had any food? Nope. He said to them, cast the nets on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast, and they were not able to draw it in because the multitude of fish now. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, oh, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he does the stupidest thing. He puts on his outer garment and jumps off the boat. The other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, dragging the nets of fish. 
And as soon as they'd come to them, they saw a fire of coals there and fish already laid on it with bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you've caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to the land full of large fish, 153. And, all, and although there were so many, the net was not broken. And he said, come and eat. Yet not one of the disciples dared to ask who you are, knowing it was the Lord. And Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them like the wise fish. Likewise with the fish. This is the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Verse 15. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus says to Simon, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? I've always wondered what he meant by that, but now seeing that Peter drugged the fish up, I'm beginning to wonder if he's not saying, do you love me more than these other disciples love me, but do you love me more than all of this? He said, yes, you know I love you. Feed my lambs. He said the second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to them, tend to my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, do you love me? And Peter was grieved when he said it to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you were old, you will stretch your hands out to gird another will carry you wherever you do not wish. And he spoke this signaling, signifying by what death he would be glorified. And he says, follow me. I, I love the poeticness of this. You are lost at sea with no food and no fish and I call you and tell you to throw your nets to the other side, and it happens you have now betrayed me. And Yet again, I will repeat what I did, because what happens a lot of times in our lives is that as we stray from Jesus, he brings us back to a point where we last connected with Jesus. And this is why you see people who will go to a, a church service or whatever and they will sing a song and they will be moved to tears and it's an oldie or whatever it is, a throwback, whatever it may be, and they're at the altar because in this moment, they are brought back to a moment where they last connected with Jesus. And this is what he's always wanting to do is he's continually trying to tell every single one of us that it's time to come home. He says, Peter, do you love me? Yeah. Do you love me? Yeah, do you love me? Because three times you denied me, and three times you're telling me you loved me. And I, and I don't believe that he was testing Peter to look at him and just be like, are you sure this time? Ha, 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 nudge, nudge. I don't believe this was a joke. I don't believe that. And there's times in, the, in scriptures where I feel like Jesus makes some funny comments. The road to Emmaus is hilarious to me. But in this moment, understanding that Peter was there, understanding that Peter has had these crazy emotional roller coasters. I really believe dealing with the shame he had dealt with, that he might have sat at the fire and poked at the coals the entire time and not said a word. I've been that person. You've been in trouble by your parents, and then you had a long car ride. 
interesting, everything out the window at 75 miles an hour. It's just beautiful just to watch as it goes by. (laughs) Peter, in this moment, is sitting there. He doesn't have to do this. Hey, Peter, do you love me? There's a connection point. You know I do. You know I do. At what point does Jesus bring up his past? Because he doesn't care. I love what Peter says, you know all things. You know all things, Lord. You knew I would betray you. So you know now what I am. And what Jesus is now speaking to Peter, what we're missing here is that you love me enough that this next time you will die for me. But it's because you choose to. We look at this and be like, oh, this is heavy. I believe this is him speaking to Peter going, you really do, and I see it. And you know that I see it. There's a faith that's arising because eventually we see that in Rome, Peter being persecuted and Peter going to, to, to die, they go to crucify Peter just like they crucified Jesus. He says, it is not worthy that I be crucified like my Lord. And they ask and they turn him upside down to be crucified. Bold, man. The next type of person there is Mary Magdalene. I look at Mary Magdalene as the stuck servant, where Peter may have dealt with shame, where Mary, the mother of Jesus, dealt with consistency. Mary Magdalene is the, the stuck servant. We see that, in, for time's sake, in Luke chapter 8, that Mary is called the woman that is filled with seven demons. That's a good name to start off with. She's possessed. Jesus, looking at her, not like you'd see in the movies, performs an exorcist, exorcism as we would, as we would call it today. And I love what uh, Maurice Casey says, the author of the, the Jesus of Nazareth book. <clears throat> he summarizes, Mary must have suffered from severe emotional and psychological trauma to be deemed necessary by others for an exorcism. She was battered and bruised, injured in an agony from the suffering of the demon possession that entailed her. Mary lost all control of dignity along with everything she knew in her previous life with beauty and wealth that did not spare her from the evil that assailed and attacked her every hour of the day. Seven, being an important number, is a number uh, suggesting completeness, implying that when the evil spirits dominated Mary, the suffering was extreme, severe, and complete. She had no control over herself. One can only speculate what it was like at the moment when Jesus looks upon Mary in her state of desperation that only he could have seen who she really was regardless of her derailed state. But not only did he recognize her, but he commanded the demons to leave her. I love this idea that Mary being full of demons, and we can see it time and time again when Jesus dealt with the demoniac and dealt with other people that they would fall on the ground, throwing themselves at them because of his power, who he was. I think it's fair to assume that Mary most likely did the same thing. Everyone else backs away because this is the crazy woman who's full of demons. She had money. 
We know she had some form of money because she's also the same woman that poured the alabaster box over her head. That was an expensive perfume. She, but money couldn't buy her peace. Money couldn't buy her joy. Money couldn't fix her problems. Only Jesus could. We see from that moment on that Mary follows Jesus wherever he goes, all the way to the cross. And Luke, we see that Mary actually follows him to the cross, and she follows the men who take his body off the cross to watch how they are preparing his uh, body for burial. So she knew where he was buried. She didn't look for him. She knew. She watched them wrap him. She watched them put him in the tomb. So the next day, which was the Sabbath, which she was not allowed to take care of the body for law's sake, the next, the, on Sunday, she could go and take care of it. She knew all of these things. And I love it that as she walks up, he's not there. She is perplexed. She turns around. She doesn't know what's going on. And she sees a man that is the gardener, and she's I just, if you can give me just a, a little bit of grace, staring at the ground and shame going, where have you put his body? Just, listen, we all make mistakes. We all do stupid things. This is what she tells him. Just tell me where his body is and I'll take care of it. I just want it back. Just want it back. I love when Jesus looks at her and says, Mary, Mary. She, she didn't recognize him. And a lot of times we say it's because she didn't recognize his new glorified body. I don't, I don't necessarily think that that's the case. As Jesus walked in the room, they, they recognized who he was. When he said, hey, Thomas, look up, they recognized who he was. He has the ability to change, sure, but, you know, it's kind of hard to recognize somebody when you're always staring at the ground. But there's something about his voice. There's something about his voice that recognizes. Because in her darkest moment, surrounded by seven oppressive demons, it was his voice that pulled her back to the light. And in the darkest moment, not finding out where his body was, it was his voice that brought her back up again to look him back in the eyes. And it says that she clings to him. And he says, whoa, 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 chill out. Don't cling to me. I've yet to ascend. That's always perplexed me. Who why is that a big deal? Because in a couple of verses later, we see people fall at his feet and grab hold of his feet, and he doesn't rebuke them. Why, why is it wrong for her to cling, but it was, not, it was okay for other people to cling? Is it because he was on a time clock, and he just had to go up to heaven real quick and give God a high five and come back down? What was it? And, and, I, and I've wrestled with this, and if I can have a little bit of creativeness, I, I also think there's something in, in what she calls him. She calls him rabbi, teacher. He says, don't cling to me. Wait a second. Because he wasn't done. And this is the thing that happens for a lot of us is that we have this moment with Jesus that we want to hold on to and not let go of for the rest of our lives. But can I tell you, God is wanting you to go from glory to glory, from grace to 
to grace. And you can have an encounter with the Holy Spirit today, but can I tell you, your encounter today is not where you will peak for the rest of your life. It's supposed to be just the beginning. We remember our encounters, but we don't cling to it because what will happen is for the rest of our lives, if we cling to a singular moment, we will try to recreate that moment over and over and over again. And moments like that are like the manna that fell from heaven in in, in Egypt. They will become moldy and stale, and we're going to try to find ourselves, what's wrong with this moment when God's got new wine and new wineskins? And what happens to stuck servants like Mary is, we have this incredible moment, we read about this thing, and then for the next 30 years, we try to reproduce said moment, and God's over here going, I've got other plans. Follow me into something new. As long as we are perpetually living in the good old days, you're going to always peak in the past. God did not intend for you to peak 20 years ago spiritually. Can I tell you, he's not intending for you to peak today. Every single experience with God is supposed to be a new peak and a new peak and a continuing grace and continual growing. Don't cling to me. Let me go. I've got new things to do. Last, there's, there's Thomas. You've got to love Thomas. We, we call him Doubting Thomas because of one moment. I feel like that's unfair. I feel like that's unfair because remember when Lazarus dies and Jesus is going to go take care of Lazarus and, and, and raise him from the dead? The other disciples go, we're going to die. They're trying to kill you. What does Thomas say? Let's go die with him. Thomas is geared up, man. That, that, that guy's on speed. He is just ready to roll. Uh, he, he's, he's hyped up on testosterone and something else. I don't know, but he's ready to do whatever it takes. More than once, he looks and says profound things about him being the, the lamb. Thomas knows these things. The problem was what Thomas didn't catch was that there was going to be a resurrection. Thomas was good with Jesus dying But now that when he comes back, what does that mean for me? I I, I think Thomas is the guy who has the end game of this is going to go out with the bang with Jesus. It doesn't happen, so now what? So when the disciples look and say, he's alive, he's well, everything is great, Thomas goes, there's no way. Why? It doesn't make sense. You know what doesn't make sense? The resurrection of Jesus. But for some reason, we've been okay with the virgin getting pregnant. The things that we pick and choose that don't make sense crack me up all the time. We're looking at this thing the wrong way, going, it's not supposed to make sense because if you can take an infinite God and put it into my finite brain, then he's not really all-powerful and all-knowing. He's very, very small. And it's that whole thing where we have these laws of motion and, and we have laws of physics that we use and, and we live in. And one perpetual law of physics is that n- something can't come from nothing, which is one of our big arguments against evolution. And what evolutionists will come back to me and go, well, if, nothing can, if something can't come from nothing, then where did God come from? Well, you can't create himself, Right? What we're missing here is this, is everything that we deal with in this world is dealt with rules and laws. 
spiritual things are not subjected to the same rules, laws, and motions that we are connected with. And in this natural world, nothing can just reproduce itself into something. It can't just happen. There has to be an external force that causes something on this earth to expand. But God himself is not subjected to the current legal laws of physics and nature. He's outside of them because no creator will ever be subjected to their own creation. And this is what's taken place. It will never, ever, ever make sense. You want to hurt your head? Seriously? Ask yourself, what was God's first thought? I'm here? Like, you can't, because in our world, we have a very linear thought process of a starting point and an end point. And when you understand eternity, it is outside of time itself. So God comes in and comes out whenever he wants to. And in this moment of the resurrection, for the virgin birth, to walking on the water, to casting out demons, to, to breaking bread and, and fishes, to, to, to doing all of these things... It doesn't make sense, and it's not supposed to, because you're not called to serve a God that makes sense. So when Thomas goes, it doesn't make sense. Of course it doesn't make sense. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, and he says, go ahead, put your hands, touch it. He's not looking at Thomas going, how about them apples? The post-resurrection Jesus, except for the road of Emmaus, I I find myself, he finds himself very understanding of every individual condition. And I think these four stories are important because that's typically where we are. We are either somebody who has believed and we followed and we're getting tired. We've been doing the right things for the right reasons the entire time, and we're exhausted. Maybe we become the Peter that has betrayed and come back and betrayed and come back, and we're dealing with shame of our past and all of our issues. And he comes to you in that moment and says, you love me. It's okay. Maybe we're a Thomas that doesn't believe it all. We've been going through the motions. He still gathers with the disciples if he's one of the guys, but he doesn't believe it. And maybe you're at a crossroads where you're going, do I really believe this faith or not? And I need to make a decision. Maybe you're the stuck servant that's living on the past and and continually trying to reduplicate a situation over and over again. And until it looks exactly like it used to look, it's not going to be okay. Either way, God comes to all four of us the same way. With love, understanding, yet a call for something new. I'm going to close with this. In John chapter 20, there is a verse that I just, I love. In John chapter 20, verse 7, it says this. Sorry, verse 3. Peter went out and the other disciples, they were going to the tomb, and they ran together, and the other disciple, John, outran Peter and got to the tomb first. And when he, stooping down, looked and saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb and saw the white linen clothes lying there. And the handkerchief 
that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place all by itself. It's just a unique phrase. Why would Jesus fold the linen cloth? Why would he do all of those things? Yet, it's not, that should have been the first miracle. Man made the bed. But the, 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 the reality is, is that Jesus has all the linen cloths over there, but then he specifically folds the face shroud. Why is that? I can't tell you the answer why. I wish I could. There's some speculation, and I'm going to go with with some creative licensing for a second. Again, preface, this is Pete, not in the scripture. There is a Jewish tradition when a servant would go and serve his master. Uh, the servants would not stand next to the master while he eats, but they would go into another room, periodically peering in. And here's how it worked. If the master stood up from the table, wiped his face, wiped his beard, wiped his hand, balled up the napkin, and threw it in the table, it meant he was done. And the servant could then come in and clean up the mess. However, if the, serv- if the master stood up, folded the napkin, and set it down, it meant I'm coming back, I'm not done yet. And I've watched this story time and time and time again, and I love that aspect, because if you're going to rob a body, why fold the napkin? If you're going to be a tomb raider, why do all those things? You just grab the claws and everything and sell it all in the black market. If that's what you're going to be doing. But in this case, Jesus folds the napkin very carefully and leaves it there. And I really, truly believe with all my heart and soul as a sign that this wasn't an accident. I'm not done yet. I'll be right back. And I want you to hear me when I tell you today, just like it was thousands of years ago, he's not done yet. The world may be doing some crazy stuff. And for 40 straight days, Jesus walks the earth with thousands of people and eyewitnesses following him, looking at him, testifying of it. But even then, he's still not done. When he's on the cross and he says, it's finished, that chapter had closed, and a brand new chapter began. And he's not done writing in this book. That book is done. Do not add to that book. But the story of your life connecting to what he's continually doing is not done. Don't stop moving forward. So God, we just thank you that you are not done. That as Peter looks in and goes, he's still going and he ponders what all this could mean. I just thank you that today, Jesus, that you're not finished, that you're not done with us yet, that you're still using. And whether we're a Mary who's being weary, whether we are uh, a servant that has been clinging, whether we are a disciple that has been shaming, or we are a Thomas that has been uh, doubting, God, I thank you that you know exactly where we are. And I ask, oh, Heavenly Father, that you speak love to each and every one of us. Let your presence, your power, and your grace come in today. In Jesus' mighty name, amen, amen. We love you guys. We'll see you all soon. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Have a great week.